0: the Barton Gilman Legal Lowdown podcast series. Today, we will be discussing Massachusetts transgender laws with Barton Gilman attorney and partner Kevin M. Hensley. Kevin has 27 years of experience as a trial and appellate attorney, representing businesses of all sizes in disputes involving employment discrimination, contracts, personal injuries, property damage, indemnity, and insurance coverage. He's tried over 115 cases in state and federal court and has argued dozens of appeals in the Massachusetts Appeals Court, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court, and the First Circuit Court of Appeals. Kevin, welcome to the podcast and thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Diana. Kevin, transgender laws are a very uh, niche area of the law, and certainly it affects employers and individuals. Can you tell us a little bit about, for you, what drew you into this area of practice and what you enjoy about it?
1: Yeah, I was admittedly somewhat um, ignorant of the issue uh, until I had a client, a nonprofit religious organization that contacted me soon after the 2016 law was enacted, and they were basically very confused about what they needed to do both as an employer and as a religious organization they sort of had those two issues combined that they had to deal with so i decided to educate myself about the issue both about the nature of gender identity which i really had only the a surface acquaintance with and about the new law and the history of the transgender rights in massachusetts and this involved reading the law, reading the guidance, trying to get some background on the issue, and then actually visiting the facilities of the organization that I represent to see what could be done with the physical facilities to comply with the new law and try to minimize any problems that might arise. So through a combination of legal research, talking to the client and site visits, we were able to come up with a plan to comply with the new law in the least disruptive way possible. And through that process, I became interested in the issue um, and have tried to follow developments as they occur because there have been you know, developments at both the state and federal level. And I found it interesting uh, and found it a uh, worthy subject to study.
0: Kevin, as we get started discussing transgender laws in Massachusetts, can you give us a quick sense and overview of the terms that you'll use
1: Sure, uh, Diana, uh, probably the most important term when this issue arises in Massachusetts law is the term gender identity. And it's a term I think people are becoming more and more familiar with, but perhaps not everybody. Massachusetts law actually defines the term gender identity basically to mean it's a person's appearance or behavior, it's how they feel about their gender, whether or not that's the same as the sex that they were assigned at birth. So regardless of anatomy, gender identity is the gender that a person identifies with, whether that's male or female, and that's basically what Massachusetts law is talking about when it uses the term gender identity. And that leads to the second term, which obviously is important for this topic, and that's the term transgender. And that basically refers to a person whose gender identity is different from that person's assigned birth sex. So that you might be born anatomically a male, but your gender identity is female, that would suggest that you are a transgender female. And in every sense except anatomically, you identify as a woman. And that's typically what we mean when we use the term transgender.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about the history of transgender laws and rights in Massachusetts?
1: Sure. It's hard to trace back probably to a starting point, but at least around uh, the year 2000 or so, there is some law on the subject of transgender rights. And initially, it was sort of confusing and tortured. There were courts and administrative agencies that were trying to protect transgender rights, but they didn't really have the correct tools to do that. For example, one of the early cases from the Commission Against Discrimination uh, in 2001 involved an employee at a mini market. Um, This employee had been born male with the name Raymond, but was gender identity in every sense was female. And she used the name Rachel, But her employer didn't like that, Uh, had a hard time with, I think, the concept of being transgender. Uh, ordered the employee to use the name Raymond, despite her gender identity, ordered her to wear male clothes. And the employee filed a complaint with the Commission Against Discrimination, uh, really trying to vindicate her rights as a transgender individual. The Commission Against Discrimination clearly sided with the employee and felt that discrimination was occurring, but had a hard time finding a legal framework to protect Rachel's rights. So, what they did was they referred to the Massachusetts discrimination law, uh, in particular disability discrimination, and held, and this is the part that was a little bit tortured, that the status as transgender was a type of disability that was entitled to protection. And that worked as far as protecting Rachel's rights at her workplace, but it really wasn't appropriate, at least in my opinion, to talk about someone being transgendered as having a disability. But that was really the only thing the Commission Against Discrimination had to work with. Uh, Around the same time, the Massachusetts Superior Court took the same approach in a case uh, decided under the state constitution, which also protects against disability discrimination. Uh, This case involved a a female student. Uh, She uh, identified as female. Her gender identity was female, but um, the school was not allowing her to wear women's clothing, and the Superior Court vindicated those rights. Uh, This girl was a allowed to wear women's clothing, but again, using this sort of fiction of disability uh, for someone who's transgendered. So finally, things started to take a different turn around 2011. Uh, Governor Patrick, governor at the time, issued an executive order in 2011. It applied only to executive branch agencies and programs funded by the state government, but for the first time, it actually included gender identity as a protected class so that you didn't have to talk about gender identity as a disability. You could just talk about it as a protected class, and executive branch agencies could no longer discriminate against someone who was transgender. And then one year later, a major step was taken when the Massachusetts legislature enacted the Transgender Rights Act. Uh, This was sometimes referred to as TERA, T-E-R-A. This included gender identity as a protected class for employment, housing, education, credit, and lending. So now an employee like Rachel from the case involving the convenience store didn't have to pretend they had a disability. They could point directly to this law and say, I am protected as a transgender individual, and employers could no longer discriminate. So those were the important steps that were taken uh, leading up to more recent developments. It
0: must have given individuals, transgender individuals, much more um, empowerment. I, th-
1: I think so. You know, Finally, they were recognized as a protected class along with Uh, race, uh, sex, disability, those classes of people who I think our, our government and our society has decided we really need to protect because there's a long history of discrimination, to be included in that group I think probably was a major step forward.
0: Yeah. Thank you. Um, In 2016, Governor Baker signed a law protecting transgender people from discrimination in public places. Can you tell us about the 2016 law and its purpose?
1: This is the most recent major development in the Field of transgender rights in Massachusetts. This law was titled an act relative to transgender anti-discrimination. And it was really designed to extend protections against discrimination based on gender identity to any place of public accommodation. So we already had protections in the workplace and we had protections in housing and education. This 2016 law was much broader. And as we'll see in a few minutes, covers a wide range of businesses and activities. When he signed the law, Governor Baker indicated that uh, no one should be discriminated against in Massachusetts because of their gender identity. That's a major statement for the chief executive to make. Um, He noted that the legislation was going to extend protection to the Commonwealth's transgender community and that it also included language to address some public safety concerns that had been expressed, quite frankly, by groups of individuals who were opposed to this law. And as we'll see, there are some regulatory guidance that addresses those concerns. So in a sense, it was compromise legislation, but it was, I think, clearly a major step forward for the transgender community.
0: Yeah. Was it considered kind of uh, the state taking a zero tolerance stance against any form of discrimination?
1: Pretty close. Yeah, pretty close, and um, I really think there are very few loopholes in the law, although there are gray areas, and some of those we can talk about in a little bit.
0: Can you explain to us the exact text of this 2016 law by Governor Baker and how it advanced from the 2012 law.
1: Sure, and and somewhat surprisingly, it is not a major piece of legislation in the sense that it's not a massive, multi-page bill. It really uh, was fairly limited in its text. So what the new 2016 Act did was take... Massachusetts existing law about public accommodation discrimination, which protected classes such as religion, race, sex, sexual orientation, and it just added two words to that law, gender identity, uh, including those now in the list of protected classes. And then it had one other provision, uh, which was just a sentence really, that states if you have sex segregated facilities, and by that I mean men's rooms, ladies' rooms, a men's locker room, a ladies' locker room, this law now required that any individual can use the sex-segregated facility that is consistent with their gender identity, so that someone who was born biologically male, but whose gender identity is female, now has the legal right to use a female facility. And really, that was the text of the new law. Those were the two things it accomplished, but in very few words had a sweeping effect on the rights of transgender individuals.
0: Yeah, I'm sure. This must have also affected uh, changing rooms and stores. So um, I would think that would have a major effect on several businesses.
1: Yeah, we'll talk about that a bit more. But for sure, anything that is, again, the term is sex segregated, meaning this space is set aside for women, this space is set aside for men, those now are open to transgender individuals to choose based on their gender identity rather than their biological sex.
0: And can you give us your input on the guidance and the meaning of that new law?
1: Yes, the law itself when it was enacted indicated that the Attorney General and the Commission Against Discrimination should issue guidance to businesses and individuals on the new law because, as I said, it was so few words that it clearly creates a lot of gray areas and so the attorney general and the commission against discrimination have published guidance on the new law on their website and it does fill in a lot of the gray areas that are left by the text of the statute itself this guidance from the attorney general and the commission against discrimination won't be binding if uh, a dispute went to court a judge wouldn't have to follow it but As is generally the case with administrative agency guidance, courts are very deferential to what the attorney general says and the Commission Against Discrimination says. So if a business or an individual is looking for some guidance, this is clearly the best place to look because in all likelihood, a court is going to go along with what the attorney general and the Commission Against Discrimination have put out there on their websites. Was
0: there any surprises to you in that guidance?
1: No, I think it was fairly common sense. And I think the Attorney General and the Commission Against Discrimination did a good job trying to anticipate some of the problems that might arise down the road. They include some scenarios that businesses might encounter and they explain what a business owner uh, might do, do to handle those situations when they arise. So I think, Uh, It was well-drafted and very helpful uh, for anyone trying to navigate this new law.
0: And can you dive deeper into um, the specific guidance and where the laws exactly will take effect and have taken effect?
1: Speaking broadly, the new law applies to public accommodations, But you do have to dive a little deeper because I think a lot of people hear that term and might think hotels, uh, you know, that's an accommodation. But it's much broader than that. Uh, The statutory language suggests that a public accommodation is any business that accepts or solicits the patronage of the general public. So things like hotels, restaurants, barbershops, anything that operates for profit is clearly within the definition of a public accommodation. But it goes even beyond that. Um, The law, although it talks about soliciting business, also includes examples like meeting places, meeting halls, common halls of buildings. And so the Attorney General, when she issued her guidance, indicated that the new law will cover businesses regardless of whether or not they charge for products or services. So a free lecture, uh, a public park, a library, all of these are going to be considered public accommodations and they will all be covered by the new law protecting the rights of transgender individuals.
0: What is the effect of the new law?
1: It can be broken down into two discrete areas. Uh, The first and most obvious, I guess you could just call disparate treatment, and what that means is that a public accommodation cannot treat a transgender individual any differently than anyone else. So, and I I would hope this would be obvious to most people, but, you know, if someone who comes in who is transgender, they can't be denied services, they can't be seated at the back of the room, uh, they can't be refused uh, entry to a facility. Um, Just like any other protected class, whether it's race or religion or sex or uh, sexual orientation, uh, transgender individuals now have those same legal protections. But there's a second part, and this is the more controversial part and the one that got the most publicity when the law was being debated, and that has to do with sex-segregated facilities. So this is, as I discussed earlier, the fact that sex-segregated locker rooms, bathrooms, and changing rooms are all protected areas now under the 2016 statute. It's still okay to have a men's room. It's still okay to have a ladies room. It's just that now someone who is transgender can use the facility that matches their gender identity as opposed to their biological sex. So those are the two areas that the new law will have the greatest impact. I think that the disparate treatment part Uh, less of an impact, less controversial. I think most people are on board with that, that someone who's transgender shouldn't be treated any differently. The sex segregated facilities uh, has created more controversy, uh, but by all indications, since the law was enacted, there's been very little publicity. There seem to have been very few incidents. It does not seem To have been the parade of horribles that some opponents of the legislation were trotting out when the bill was being debated. Uh, So while it's a legitimate issue, uh, so far so good.
0: And would you say that, at least in Massachusetts, it's certainly not been the sort of scandalous story that it was a few years ago back in North Carolina when um, the bathroom bill was toted and talked about extensively?
1: Yes, and you know there may be some regional differences that account for some of that, um, but I also think the the bill was handled skillfully by the legislature and the governor. Uh, there were some compromises made, and by and large, the Massachusetts political climate seemed reasonably receptive to this new legislation. And as I say, since it was enacted, at least I'm really not aware of any major problems. I, there likely have been some, but it certainly hasn't been a major issue. I think that's good news for everybody, uh, that the laws um, has been implemented smoothly by all accounts.
0: That's great. Um, I would imagine some businesses may be concerned about how the new law will impact customers and their employees. Um, What scenarios might a business encounter as the result of the law?
1: Right, and I think this comes down mostly to the issue of sex-segregated facilities, men's rooms, ladies' rooms. And the statute, the 2016 law, is is really silent on this. As I mentioned, this is where you need to look to the Attorney General's website for guidance and the Commission Against Discrimination for guidance. And the most typical scenario, and the one that I imagine some business owners have thought about, is if you have someone who by all appearances is male, uh, physical features, dress, appears to be male, going into the ladies' room. And it's a legitimate concern for a business owner, I think. They would wonder, what are my customers going to think when that happens? Is there going to be concern? Uh, And the, the attorney general is pretty clear that the law requires a business owner to assume That someone using a sex-segregated facility is using it properly, so that as someone walks into the ladies' room, you should assume that that person's gender identity is female, and that they're using the facility that is consistent with their gender identity. And by and large, a business should not inquire. You shouldn't stop the person from using that facility, you shouldn't ask, and you should make the assumption that they're using the correct facility in accordance with their gender identity. Now, on occasion, and the attorney general recognizes this, there might be some legitimate concern that an individual is not using the correct facility, because the law does not give anyone the right to use a sex-segregated facility that's not consistent with their gender identity. Someone can't pretend to have a female gender identity and use the ladies' room, and While appearance alone is not a red flag, there might be other red flags. A business might notice furtive behavior, Uh, they might notice someone with their cell phone out in camera mode, or some other sort of actual behavior that suggests something inappropriate might be going on. And the Attorney General's guidance indicates that if that happens, a business owner is entitled to sort of make a private inquiry of the person. Take them aside out of earshot and say uh, we just want to be sure you're using the appropriate facility and if the person answers yes uh, my gender identity is female and i'm using the female facility typically that should be the end of the inquiry unless there's something further about the behavior that suggests uh, either illegal conduct or disruptive conduct that should be the end of the inquiry you really typically should not ask for any proof of gender identity. Uh, if someone says in response to this private inquiry, no, this is the right facility for me, um, that should be the end of it. So that's probably the most typical scenario. And while the guidance of the attorney general is very helpful, it obviously can't cover every conceivable situation, there has to be common sense involved. But I think the common sense needs to be informed by the purpose of the new law, which is to protect the rights of those who are transgender as much as possible. And if common sense and if that general spirit inform a business owner's decisions, I think there'll be very few actual controversies.
0: And is that the case as well? Or is there any specific guidance if a business owner or an employee at the business faces a customer complaining about another customer? Or you, you could easily see the scenario of somebody confused about what's going on and, and kind of causing a, a bit of a riot about what's happening in the bathroom. How can business owners and employees sort of Calm that situation? Uh, do, is there anything legally that they are bound to do or not to do?
1: Well, yeah, I think they're fair to say there is. Uh, the customer who complains, and I think that's a very realistic scenario, hopefully it doesn't happen too often, but it, it likely can. The customer who says, hey, there's a man going into the ladies' room, you got to stop this. Uh, the business owner can't really yield to the pressure from the complaining customer. The law and the attorney general make it clear that the rights of the transgender individual are paramount here. So what the attorney general suggests is that the business owner calmly tell the complaining customer that Massachusetts has a law that protects the rights of transgender individuals to use the facility consistent with their gender identity, and that the fact that someone appears to be male, for example, uh, isn't dispositive of their gender identity and that we as a business have a legal responsibility to let people use the facility that's consistent with their gender identity. And that hopefully will do it. Uh, sometimes I think a customer, when this is explained to them, might be, satisfy them. If it doesn't uh, and the customer becomes disruptive, then the business has the right to remove that customer as, as they would any disruptive customer in any circumstances. The, the same general rules there apply. And again, this guidance won't account for every situation, but uh, common sense generally should prevail. And essentially, you know, anybody who becomes disruptive for any reason can be removed from a business and you can call the police if you have to, if things get really out of hand. That will be very rare, I think, but that's the guidance that the uh, attorney general has provided when the customer complains, which certainly could happen.
0: Has there ever been a recommendation for um, the sex segregated restrooms, changing rooms to um, hang any kind of poster or statement uh, along these lines? And are there any other best practices that businesses have um, available to them to follow?
1: Well, yeah, there are. I actually haven't seen any of those signs and I haven't seen that discussed. Uh, and I hope that that's an indication that it hasn't been a major problem. Uh, I think if it had, you might see some of that, but I'd like to think that the absence of those that sort of signage means it hasn't been a major issue. One thing that can be done uh, to avoid any problems altogether is to establish single-occupancy, gender-neutral facilities. The law permits this. You can, if you have a single-occupancy bathroom, or two of them, one of them has been a ladies' room, one of them has been a men's room, you can make them both into gender-neutral restrooms, and this eliminates any problem at all. And you certainly have probably seen this, restrooms with both male and female icons, or a sign that just says restroom this eliminates any problem. Anybody can use either of the restrooms, regardless of their gender identity, regardless of whether they're transgender, and it really avoids a lot of problems. And the attorney general makes it clear that while you're not required to do this, you certainly can, because it treats everyone equally. It treats everyone the same. So if it's You know, the building is configured in a way that permits this, it's definitely uh, a good idea and it avoids any problems at all. There will be no customer complaints from either side, rather, whether it's a transgender customer or a customer who doesn't like the looks of things. It avoids that problem. Uh, There are a few other things I think that are best practices for businesses uh, in light of the new law. Uh, One key is employee education, particularly for those employees who interact with the public. Uh, This is new for a lot of people, uh, and I think that employers need to let their employees know what transgender means and what the requirements of the new law are. Without that employee education, I could definitely see some uh, awkward and inappropriate situations arising. Uh, An employee sees someone who appears to be male using the ladies' room and yells, hey, buddy, you can't go in there. With employee education, I think you can avoid a lot of those scenarios. I think that it's important for a business to avoid gender-specific dress codes. Um, It's really inappropriate at this point to say, you know, if you are born a male, you must wear this set of clothing. If you are born biologically female, you must wear this set of clothing. The... Transgender individuals should be free to wear the clothing that's most consistent with their gender identity. And I think it would be contrary to the new statute uh, to have any other policy. And it's equally important for businesses to have open eyes and open ears for harassment arising out of someone's gender identity. Because there will be people who have prejudices that they can't let go of, who are may be scared and frightened of a transgender individual because they don't understand it. And that breeds the potential for harassment in the workplace. And you obviously, as an employer, cannot turn a blind eye to that. Um, You've gotta be proactive to address that harassment if it occurs through employee education, through disciplinary action, if appropriate. Because you as an employer could be liable for that harassment if you don't take steps to correct it. So it's having knowledge of the new law. It's having knowledge of what gender identity really means that will avoid potential discrimination claims, will avoid customer complaints, and will keep a content and unified workplace. So those are some of the best practices that I think employers can adopt.
0: Yeah, we're seeing those already when you go into certain um, stores and restaurants. I'm seeing more and more of those um, just blanket restroom. They're not sex segregated. Um, You go to the mall now and there's a variety of restrooms available. There's women's rooms, men's rooms, family restrooms. Um, And it's nice to see all those options. Changing rooms are for anyone to use.
1: Yeah, it's one of those rare win-win situations uh, under the law where um, it just solves multiple problems at one time. So it is one of the best things a employer or with the new 2016 law, a place of public accommodation can take. Definitely advisable.
0: Um, I would imagine that the law is very challenging for some religions, um, churches, organizations. And I, I think in terms of not only their regular service and how the building is outfitted, but things that take place at a church, like uh, many churches sponsor AA meetings um, or other group discussions that are not related to the church, but they're using the building. Um, How can churches comply with this law? Are they required to... um, especially in a landscape of churches where funds are dwindling how do they reconfigure bathrooms if that's something that's needed if they they simply don't have the money to do so uh, what's the recommendation there
1: well it is a little bit different when it comes to churches because there's an intersecting right of first amendment religious freedom that in some cases can conflict with the new law and Early on in the life of the new public accommodation statute, there was a challenge to it by a group of Christian organizations. They filed suit in federal court against the Commission Against Discrimination and the Attorney General. And the gist of the suit was that, at least for these churches, there was a deeply held religious belief that sex is ordained by God at birth, that it's not variable, and that someone who is anatomically male is male, that someone who is anatomically female is female and that that's a decision made by God and it's a deeply held part of their religious beliefs. These same churches uh, alleged in their lawsuit that it would violate their religious beliefs to have gender identity determine what sex-segregated facilities are used. In other words, they felt it was a violation of their religious beliefs to have a transgender female use a men's restroom. And they alleged in their lawsuit that forcing them to comply with the new law would violate their First Amendment rights. And they uh, were particularly upset with some language on the Attorney General's website, which was there initially, which specifically stated that houses of worship were public accommodations. The Commission Against Discrimination had similar language. Uh, it stated that a church could be a place of com- a public accommodation if they held a secular event like a spaghetti supper. And this phrase became a bone of contention. They, uh, The spaghetti supper test was how it was referred to by the religious organizations. They claimed that any event in their building, whether it was a spaghetti supper that might seem secular, was a part of their religious mission. That when a church holds an event that might seem secular, that's deceptive, that it is all part of their religious mission. And they really did not like the MCAD trying to carve out certain parts of their operations and saying, well, these are going to be subject to the law, but I suppose if you're having an actual religious service, it won't. They rejected that distinction and that was part of their lawsuit. So, This lawsuit, I think, prompted the Attorney General to take a fresh look at the guidance that it put on its website and there was a a settlement of sort sort reached with the churches. The MCAD revised its guidance on the website and it states now that the new law, the Public Accommodations Law, does not apply to a religious organization if the law would violate the organization's First Amendment rights. Uh, The MCAD removed the spaghetti supper language from its website. And again, the gist of the rule now seems to be that you as a church do not have to comply with the public accommodations law if it would violate your First Amendment rights. Of course, that begs the question a little bit. Uh, because whether or not it violates your First Amendment rights is sort of the bone of contention. But it did satisfy the churches, at least for now. They withdrew their lawsuit, and seems to be an uneasy truce at the moment uh, between the attorney general and at least this group of churches. There likely will be litigation over this at some point, but for the moment, it appears that churches can legitimately exclude A transgender female from using a male sex-segregated facility in their church. Can't say that definitively. Uh, There may still be circumstances where the Attorney General would take the position that no, this particular event was not part of your religious uh, substance, it was not something that was at the core of your religious beliefs, and so we are going to enforce the law. Hasn't happened yet to my knowledge. I think this uneasy truce may last for a while, but at some point this is likely to be ripe for litigation and the outcome is uncertain. little bit of guidance, though, that's out there. Um, there was a case back in uh, 2002 involving the Nation of Islam when uh, Louis Farrakhan held an event, a speaking event, where he excluded women. And a uh, challenge was brought to that based on the existing law preventing discrimination based on sex in public accommodations and the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts um, basically held that this was not a secular function and the public accommodation law would not apply, that the First Amendment rights of the Nation of Islam, their religious beliefs, overrode the public accommodations law, in effect carving out a religious exemption to the public accommodation law and that same carved out exemption will apply to transgender rights under the public accommodations law so that if there is a religious function going on in a particular facility, the transgender rights likely will not apply. Now, I should point out that not all churches uh, share the same religious beliefs that these churches who filed the lawsuit did. Some churches um, likely will not uh, object to transgender female using a female facility. Um, It varies and that's fine, that's part of the diversity of religious belief in America. Uh, So some churches this will never be an issue, Uh, others it may be down the road.
0: Thank you. Um, What is the status of transgender rights at the federal level?
1: Compared to the Massachusetts scenario, it's chaotic. Um, And it has been a political football over the last few years. Uh, You know, the Obama administration had made a strong stand that the Department of Justice would protect transgender rights under the auspices of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. They viewed that that statute would apply to transgender individuals, despite the lack of explicit language in the statute. The Trump administration, in particular Jeff Sessions, reversed that ruling and has instructed the Justice Department not to consider transgender individuals as protected by the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So there are few protections at the federal level at this point. Some federal courts have uh, tried to use other statutes to protect transgender rights, but it's a patchwork at the moment. There's really no consistent federal policy. Uh, This has shown up as we all know, in the Defense Department as well, the Trump administration initially issued a directive banning transgender individuals from serving in the military. Uh, that was struck down by a number of courts based on the United States Constitution, in particular due process guarantees in the Fifth Amendment. The courts found that there was no valid reason to decree that someone who is transgender was unfit to f- serve in the military. Uh, you know, people who have illnesses might be unfit, people who have uh, grave mental illness might be unfit, but being transgender by itself these courts found there was no evidence that that was a problem. In fact a number of studies that had been commissioned on the subject found the opposite, found that transgender individuals were perfectly capable of serving in the military. Um, so the Department of Defense backed off of that directive. Uh, President Trump has recently tried to revive that directive, although somewhat modified. Uh, This, as we speak today, Diana, is completely up in the air. Um, There is clearly a conflict between the courts and the Trump administration. And so I think anyone who is transgender wanting to enlist in the military would be justifiably very confused at this point as to whether they can or cannot serve. And we can hope at some point that there's some clarity Uh, but I'm not too optimistic um, that that's gonna come at the federal level.
0: Okay, sounds like it. So for individuals um, and business owners, as individuals travel to other states away from Massachusetts, and for business owners that own businesses in Massachusetts, but also in other states, the laws that we've talked about today do not apply if you are, for example, in New Hampshire or Vermont.
1: That's right. as of as we speak today, there are 19 states that have uh, discrimination protection for gender identity, um, and it's you know constantly changing. It is politically sensitive in some states, and probably will be in flux uh, for a long time. Minnesota was actually the first state to pass a law prohibiting discrimination based on gender identity that goes back to 1993. But you're right, Diana, that uh, business owners who operate in multiple states will have to check. Their own state's laws, because it, it certainly could be very different.
0: Well, it sounds confusing, and it it also gives further evidence to your example of um, the best thing that you can do at this point, if you're if possible, is to create non sex segregated facilities, um, changing areas, things like that. Are are the is the best approach, and to do that wherever your business is
1: that's right and i imagine um that building designers architects are taking this into account now it's also possible by the way that you you know you might have some sex segregated facilities but a couple of restrooms that are gender neutral um that's also permissible depending on the size of your facility and that also addresses the problem and and yeah i I do think that is the best practice uh to avoid those issues
0: what about the upcoming ballot referendum on the 2016 public accommodations bill?
1: Well, this is sort of the final chapter for us to talk about today in any event um, because there is, uh, upcoming in November of 2018, uh, on the ballot, a referendum to repeal the 2016 law that protected gender identity. And um, for those voters who vote yes, that will uh, support upholding the bill to prevent discrimination, a no vote would repeal the law designed to prohibit discrimination based on gender identity. Um, I haven't seen a whole lot of publicity on this ballot initiative yet, but I imagine as the November elections approach, um, there will be publicity on it. There will be advertisements on both sides. There are coalitions forming around both sides of the issue. So there is this last question mark about the status of transgender rights in Massachusetts that uh, the law in 2016 will be put to the voters uh, this coming November. Um, The outcome is uncertain. But for now, of course, until there is a change, I think all businesses, public accommodations, employers, schools, lenders should all become familiar with the guidance that's out there from the Attorney General and from the Commission Against Discrimination. I think it'd be helpful for everyone to be aware of what transgender status is, to think about that with some sympathy and some empathy, and to understand that the law is really designed to ensure that everyone in our society feels welcome in places of public accommodation. Um, and if businesses have that frame of mind, I think there'll be very few issues with the law as it now stands.
0: Thank you. Thank you for joining us today, Kevin. Um, and thank you to our listeners. If you have specific questions about Massachusetts transgender laws or to learn more about Kevin, you can find his profile on our website at www.bglaw.com.
1: Thanks, Diana. It's been great to be here with you.
0: Barton Gilman is a leading civil litigation law firm with offices in Boston, Providence, and New York. Our attorneys represent a variety of clients in a wide range of matters, and our trial attorneys appear regularly in the federal and state courts of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York, as well as before various administrative agencies. Barton Gilman and its attorneys have received numerous awards and accolades, including 2017 Champions for Justice, 2015 Outstanding Philanthropic Business, Best Lawyers, Best Law Firms, Best Places to Work Rhode Island, and Super Lawyers, to name just a few. For more information about Barton Gelman, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903.
1: The content provided in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to constitute legal advice or to form an attorney-client relationship. If you would like to seek legal advice from a Barton Gilman attorney, please visit us at www.bglaw.com or call 888-273-9903 for more information.